Our special guest, Harvey Kubernick. We will come back in a moment and take calls with Harvey about the music world next on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you. Harvey Kubernick with us. His website again linked up at coasttocoastam.com. And how do people see your blog, Harvey? Just uh, check out the website. It's all there. Perfect. I, you know what? The more I talk to you about the music world, the more fascinated I become about it. Well, you know, as they say in Buddhism, go, go through it, don't become it. But in rock and roll or music, you become the music. You carry it with you. Paul McCartney's uh, daughter, Mary, right? Uh, I, you know, Mary uh, McCartney, a photographer, uh, actually contributed a couple of photos to my first book, This is Rebel Music. She's now directed a documentary on the history of Abbey Road Studios, you know, If, if These Walls Could Sing. I'm delighted to know I, I'm involved in a, a, a documentary about the legendary recording studio in Hollywood, Gold Star, and, and there's been documentaries before that have hinted or addressed the recording studios like, um, you know, the one Dave Grohl did on Sound City. There's mm-hmm. ones on Mus- Muscle Shoals and, of course, Hitsville about Detroit and Marshall Chess with Chess Records. We are now seeing <clears throat> the, um, uh, the, the recording studios and the engineers going under the microscope a bit, being documented. You know, there was many times, I mean, I'm just putting myself on in here as a music journalist. The first, the first third century of my writing, often when I would quote an engineer, the editor would cut it out, sometimes due to word space. Or people would say to me, engineers aren't sexy, or who cares about the technical stuff, because everybody was so obsessed with celebrity and the front person and the the lead singer. Now the studios and the engineers are actually being documented. So if you see maybe a future Donna Summer documentary or or Carol King documentary that will be done or a biopic, you're going to see the engineer at least being glimpsed or acknowledged. And maybe that's the extension of some of these blockbuster movies where we have the, the term that's been around for a while called the prequel. People want to know the history, the origin. I know Ram Dass says, honor the incarnation. We want to know where it starts. It starts in a room with the studio, the musicians, and the engineer, and the tape. The world and the listener and the audience and the demographics support the fact we want to know about these temples of sound. We want to know how it was created. We want to know the birth of the sound and the pound. And now we're getting it through Mary McCartney, and we're getting it through some of my work and a lot of other people that have laid the groundwork. And thankfully, there's an audience because everybody is so territorial and about their music. We know about the bands. We know so much about the groups, the bands, the record labels, the grosses, the money, the income streams. Maybe we should go a little deeper and find out how the audio traps the, the, the actual the codes that direct us through life. 
Harvey, years ago, of course, the big bands were all over the place. Uh, Sinatra used to have 30 or 40 people in his orchestras and stuff like that. We don't see that anymore. Are we losing that? Well, part of it is, well, A, part of it's the pandemic. Part of it is it's very costly to keep. Ike Turner used to talk about, do you know how hard it is to put a 12-piece band on the road? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Part of it's economic. It's a lot, of, lot of logistics. The, the, the schlepping, the transportation, the insurance, um, you know, so you're, you're losing some of that, uh, the, the big band stuff and the orchestra stuff, or it's special occasion stuff. But we are seeing some of that when some of these artists have these uh, residencies and halls, but that's more Las Vegas and big ticket stuff. But we have lost some of that, but thankfully we have the recordings and the studios and the record labels are, are very, um, the record labels are now controlling the bulk of the being the rights holders as far as the catalog and the master recordings and sometimes the music publishing. And, and what's probably going to happen, they do need an outlet um, for the older music. Why buy somebody's catalog or why acquire a record company or gobble it up and not do anything with the material. So case in point with the Bee Gees, um, they, they had a documentary a couple of years ago. And after that documentary aired, the streaming of their catalog increased 2,000%. And now they've recently announced there's going to be a biopic on the Bee Gees. So the documentaries are driving sales but also creating widescreen, you know, appreciation and news like cinematic endeavors. And an audience wants to know more about the music. Sure, they like the sensationalism, the dysfunctional family, the drug mm -hmm. you know, that's mm -hmm. always going to be there. We're getting a little sick of that. Let's find out about the birth of the actual audio that you carry with you. Let's go to the phones now. Todd is with us in Seattle, Washington, to get us started. Hi, Todd. Welcome. Thank you, George. Now, I would like to ask you about the 1980s bands like Queensryche and uh, Dokken and Tesla. Now, these bands have been maligned through rock history, and I'd like to know, do you personally acknowledge the, the contributions of Chris DeGarmo from Queensryche or any of these kind of bands? Well, I'll say one thing. Um, a good friend of mine is a guy named Lon Friend who edited Rip Magazine, which I'm, I'm pretty sure you might have heard of. He has championed a lot of these groups, and let's call it the heavy metal genre. And I'm personally, and I, I learned this from the Ronnie Dio documentary I just watched, the music or the bands you're talking about, besides being maligned and minimalized or marginalized, I even noticed they never were, like, invited to the charity events or to be in the charity endeavors or participate with the other music genres. And I know the loyalty and the devotion of that audience. Um, and so you're making a very good point. But the, they're out there touring, sometimes in package shows. And um, that audience is extremely devoted and loyal, whether it be in merchandise or, or bands reforming or going out and playing. 
and um, they certainly merit, uh, you know, discussion and acknowledgement for sure. Tom in La Jolla, California is up next. Hey, Tom, go ahead. George, thank you. Happy New Year. You too, Tom. um, Harvey, you know, you remind me of the Greek poet Homer. And Homer chronicled the gods in ancient Greece. And I feel like you are the modern-day Homer chronicling the gods of popular music for the past few decades. Will you please tell my agents and lawyers that? (laughs) <laughs> uh, and listen, La Jolla is very special to me. I did graduate San Diego State and uh, uh, discovered a lot of music in your area. How can I help you? Well, um, I want you to confirm or deny. I distinctly remember from 50, 60 years ago that Frank Sinatra recorded an entire album. It was a vinyl album in Spanish. Spanish love songs, only as Frank Sinatra could sing them. and um, But I thought I was imagining things because I kept trying. It's never been digitized. And um, finally I was able to get a friend, you know, who was able. She said, yes, this album existed. It's on eBay, but it's never been digitized, never been in compact disc or that. And... Um, also, I found a reference in a spy novel where the intelligence agent goes to Havana, Cuba, sees the album in Spanish, buys it because he's a Frank Sinatra nut, and brings it back. And so, um, well, let me say one, deny. Let, let, let me say one thing. Um, you're certainly on the right travelogue here. I know that album does exist, and I think it might have been either done or companion to. Frank Sinatra did a fantastic album with Antonio Carlos Jobim, and it created, you know, an interest in those songs being translated or other versions being done. And often you'll find, I mean, even the Beatles uh, did a couple of songs in German, versions like I Want to Hold Your Hand and Maybe She Loves You. Uh, You know, they did German versions of it, uh, sometimes people do, do that for specific markets. So um, it, it, just because it hasn't been digitized yet, there is always another Frank Sinatra documentary being done or a biopic being done. And maybe inevitably somebody will go a little deeper into the crevice and maybe use a track from the album that you've been seeking. And I think he did his Spanish album in 1975. Does that sound right, Harvey? Something like like that. It was, you know, he was he had a global audience. Um, so sometimes people did certain things for markets, but sometimes the licenses are for three or five or seven years, or you change distributors, like somebody, you know, going to a new radio chain or something. And sometimes it gets lost in translation. He came to St. Louis in 1965, way before I got here. I did see him live at the Fox Theater in 1980, I believe. But uh, when he came here in 65, he came with the Rat Pack. He came with uh, Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, 
Joey Bishop couldn't make it, so Johnny Carson came in in place of Joey Bishop. And that, and that actually um, is actually, I think, available on video, or they taped that show. It's on YouTube, the whole thing, yeah. by the yeah. way. And, and and I saw various Sinatra shows as a kid because, again, you know, when you're living in Hollywood and your high school is 300 yards away from Television City, I could go to some of the tapings with my mother, the Danny Kay show, or sing Sinatra's Man and His Music. And again, I was just as interested in Nelson Riddle or Gordon Jenkins, the arrangers, or who was playing drums. And, and Frank was spellbounding, you know, and imagine a sound studio, uh, you know, and he just, and, and the one thing Frank Sinatra did, and it's one of the things that I think has influenced my writing, although I certainly think I'm pretty original, um, he always would stop the show, and I think you probably remember this, this when you saw him. And I saw that tour in 1982, 1980 out in Long Beach. I sat next to Angie Dickinson. I'll never forget that. Um, he would, like, tell you who wrote the song or who did the original arrangement. He would do that on every song. That's right. And I'm sorry, I'm big on acknowledgement. And uh, like I just told you, I know that made an impression on you. He would stop the song and go, here's a wonderful song by Harold Arlen or Johnny Mercer. And it did not slow the pace of the show. He was an educator. He made me discover who Dimitri Tiomkin was or go check out Billy, you know, Billy May or somebody. And I know a guy like you who sings, who understands the big band and the vocalists, I don't think people, of course, most of the groups today write their own material due to economics, and also they are gifted to write their own material. They don't really cover a lot of people or do renditions, maybe for an encore, or they do a couple of songs, or the Stones will do something. That's Here's something written by our friend Bobby Womack. But Sinatra really wasn't a songwriter. Elvis only wrote one-third of his song, and maybe Frank wrote a couple. So he let you know who, where the composition came from, and also made us know who arranged it. Right. Very important. Right. Paul Anka wrote My Way for Frank, didn't he? Sure did. Classic, classic. Roger in Florida, first-time caller. Hey, Roger, go ahead. Hi, good evening, Harvey and George. Hey, Roger. Um, I'm going to go real fast, okay? All right. The first record I ever bought, I crossed Telegraph. I was six years old to buy... Uh, Hound Dog. Uh, I loved Sinatra. My father brought home Sinatra at the Sands. I got Whoa. into that when I was like 16. Well, by the way, George, I'm the same age as you. All right. Happy um, birthday. Let's see. Uh, you know, the, the Sands album was, you know, Count Basie, Quincy Jones. Come Arrange on, Sonny Payne, I think. Don't be cruel. Don't be. Yeah, come on now. That band, Quincy's yeah. Arrangements. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, I was, I, I like Led Zeppelin at the same time I was getting into Frank, you know, and so uh, I, I just run the gamut. Uh, Motown, you know, I grew up in uh, Dearborn, so uh, it was always real big. I hated the racism sometimes. I mean, we'd be at a dance or something at school, and then somebody would say something racist. And we're just dancing to these people, you know, like a temptation for somebody. And, you know, why do you got to be that way? You know, I never got that, but uh, or understood it. But, I, you know, I, music, I love it. Tim Dan Alley, 
Beautiful Noise by Neil Diamond. I think that's his best song. Anyway, I better stop. Uh, I could go all no, night. With classics. It, but, uh, whereabouts in Dearborn? Laurel Canyon, wonderful. Raj, whereabouts in Dearborn did you grow up? Uh, Telegraph and uh, just south of Michigan on New York Street. And I was at Telegraph and Van Bourne in that area. There you go. Okay, I'll I'll do I'll throw two more things and odd things. <laughs> I was in Kmart at, at uh, the Van Bourne store. Yep, it was the second one ever built. Uh, when Elvis died, I was in the parking lot, and I was in a parking lot in Seminole, Florida, at Kmart when I heard that uh, George Harrison died. Wow, kind of weird, but you know, don't go to any more parking lots. Stay away from them. Do you sure? But some great history. Uh, what about Dean Martin and his relationship with Frank Sinatra? When did that click, Harvey? It clicked. It clicked pretty early, and um, you know, they, it was a show. Okay, it, there was shtick, but there was a sense of rhythm and freedom. Cause, People loved uh, it. They laughed. They cried. They did it all. Li- listen, I saw the Rat Pack, and 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 listen. I saw a show, well, it's off topic a bit, but I saw a show with Buddy Rich and Sammy Davis Jr. It just was, it was a, it was another dimension because I realized these people were coming from music that was birthed in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, giving it to me. I mean, I saw Buddy Rich at the Whiskey a Go Go. I never heard such percussion in my life that's where the doors started right yeah they started next door at the london fog but they got they really picked up the momentum at the whiskey a go-go dean um don't let anybody fool first of all dean martin was literally one of elvis presley's favorite singers too um and and he had it and but part of it is and again and i i think this is lost on some listeners and maybe i'm the ombudsman or the ambassador to this it's not lost on me that Frank Sinatra recorded at Capitol Studios. Dean Martin did work at Capitol Studios. That studio, with their echo chambers and state-of-the-art, and also Capitol Records was birthed by songwriters, you know, like Johnny Mercer. So you had the best technical facilities recording Frank and Dean or over to Warner Brothers with Sammy at United Artists, United Recording, Western Recording. The studios made a difference. And what we have the last 10, 20, and 30 years, and I'm, I'm not denigrating it, there's a lot of records being done in home studios. Exactly. Right it's not quite the same. We're going to come back and take final calls with you, Harvey, in just a moment on Coast to Coast AM. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie back with our final segment with Harvey Kubernick as we talk about the incredible world of music. Let's go back to the phones. East of the Rockies, Joe, Long Island, New York. Hey, Joseph, go ahead. Yeah, happy New Year, George. Uh, you too, Joey. Yeah, uh, Harvey, I wanted to ask you about overlap of the audiences for Kansas, Chicago, and Blue Oyster Cult. Uh, you know, how much did those audiences overlap, concert-wise or record sales-wise? And well, uh, my second question... Yeah, go yeah. ahead. What's the second question? Yeah, my second question would just be about Roberta Flack. Was she more of an international audience than Bob Marley as well? That would it's be- funny. I've been playing Bob Marley all day. No, Bob Marley is a global icon from Ethiopia to Japan to France. Uh, Roberta, big big impressions 
in an audience around the world as well. But Bob Marley actually was selling out arenas and stadiums in a, in a lot of countries. So his imprint is bigger. Uh, I saw all the groups you're talking about, Blue Oyster Cult and, and Kansas. Um, they, they had the benefit of being on some major labels, you know, like that had distribution through Columbia. So the records got heard, and their staples, whether it be Dust in the Wind or, or Don't Fear the Reaper, you keep hearing those songs by those kind of people in soundtracks, in TVs, and in commercials. And so they're still propelled in, in front of us, and they still tour. Maybe there's only a few of the original members, and I know somebody in Kansas just died recently. They have their place in music history. They are the great ones, aren't they? Are we getting the, uh, like, where would you put someone like uh, Lady Gaga, Taylor Swift, those emerging artists compared to those of the past? Well, I'll say one thing about Taylor Swift. A good friend of mine, Justin Pierce, reminds me weekly that Taylor Swift, 10, 20, and 50 years from now, will be remembered as one of the biggest performers of all time. Time. Wow. Partly due to her record sales, her live appearances, her business savvy, um, the way she has negotiated her career. And I stopped questioning his suggestion because I've just done my own market study. Um, who else did you mention besides um, Taylor Swift? Uh, there was the Lady Gaga. Lady Gaga is, um, I think what we're finding out about Lady Gaga, and, and listen, this was somebody that was initially signed as a songwriter. This is somebody that actually can play music, can play piano, write songs. Yep. Sure, there's the name change and the costumes and all the other Michigas that comes with it. She is here to stay. We lost Bobby Rydell this year, didn't we? That was a hard one. We lost a lot of people this year, um, whether it be Jerry Allison, the drummer of the Crickets, or Don Wilson, the guitar guitarist in the Ventures, and uh, Bobby Rydell. Um, Jerry Lee Lewis. I mean, I, the, we, we lost, I mean, the people we lost this year, but, I mean, obviously, um, with, you know, you, you could talk about Dino Dinelli of the Rascals and Christy McVeigh of Fleetwood Mac. And, and, but, you know, for, for people like you and I, think about we lost Lamont Dozier, a Motown fixture. We lost somebody, a guitarist named Joe Messina. Now, people may go, who's that? Well, he was a guitarist in the Funk Brothers that were recorded with the Motown acts. He's on Dancing in the Streets. We lost Ronnie Hawkins. We lost Gary Brooker of Procol Harum. Meatloaf. Um, you know, and then, and then you probably know we lost Art LeBeau at age 97. The great, the great the DJ. The term oldies but goodies. He's featured in a couple of my books. So, but we also lost two key people. Well, I, you know, Sam Gooden of the Impressions. But there's two people we lost this year that people may not know about, but they were facilitators. One was a guy named Art Roop at 103 years old who founded Specialty Records that released Little Richard and Larry Williams and Percy Mayfield. And 
And then we also lost Jim Stewart, who founded Stax Records that gave us Isaac Hayes and Sam and Dave. Not the actor who died years ago. Right. So you have record label owners that have lived very long lives. They are the people that signed the talent or made the talent available for us. And, um, you know, and we, look at, we lost Barbara Walters, you know, a couple of hours ago. Yep. And, peop, and people will go, well, what does she have to do with music? Well, besides the fact that her TV show and, you know, would bring us Neil Diamond and people like that, her father, Lou Walters, was a music booking agent in the 30s and 40s. How about and that? opened the Latin Quarter in New York where Sinatra and Mae West and everybody would play for years. Um, so she had links to, you know, big band stuff from way back. Her father was a booking agent. She has helped bring the music through interviews largely, you know, to the Today Show and, and things like that. So it all sort of coalesces together. Let's go to Stan in Sonora, California, west of the Rockies. Hi, Stan. Hello. Hello, gentlemen. I'm, uh, thank you for having me on. Thank you for yeah. calling. I've I've heard... Two uh, stories about how DJs influenced uh, records, and uh, I thought I'd just put both of them out there and let you react and off the air, but I think I want to give you one first and maybe get a reaction. Uh, this DJ had been working at a place, and he was a little bit older than some of the other DJs, and the, the punk rock scene came on, and the, the station committed to that genre, and uh, he took a little liberty uh, with what he played, and some of the other DJs all of a sudden were getting requests to hear more of the ventures. Well, that happens that. all the time when you have a programmers or guides or playlists and all that, but the ventures have been with us since 1960. I, I know. What, what I'm saying is there seems to be a little fit of that music into the, you know, punk rock. Oh, may I, I've interviewed Johnny Ramone of the Ramones. He played a Mose Wright guitar that the Ventures popularized. Uh, the B-52s used a Mose Wright guitar. So it may not be the Ventures themselves, but the guitar model that they helped you know, become a global brand made its way into new, new music and punk rock. Absolutely. Okay. Here's story two. Um... Um, a, a, a large station in a metropolitan area era, and the DJs kind of got together, and, and at this station, basically, the station gave them a playlist, which, which they had to get these songs into their, you know, into their stint while their, their, their period while they were DJing uh, uh, during the day. Mm -hmm. But they had a few free spots where they could choose something to put in. And the story is they got together, and off the charts, they, they picked a, a couple songs that they all agreed were dogs and would never go anywhere. And they, they agreed that they would play those in their free open spots. And the local record, and one of them even knew uh, a DJ on a competing station and got them, at least one of them, to do the same thing. And the story is that the local rate, uh, the local record stores got sold out of those dog uh, <laughs> records because uh, they didn't think they'd be very good either, so they didn't have very many on the shelf. 
Any response to that? Well, that kind of stuff occasionally happened. That used to happen a bit when a record company would put out a, a record of 45, and sometimes they would flip over the A side and the B side became the popular hit. It's a much for, I'll give you an example. Russ Regan, who discovered or signed Elton John. Uh, I knew I knew Russ and the Beach Boys. Thank you. He gave the Beach Boys their name. He used to do your show. I, I mean, I, you know that. Yeah. But Russ Regan told me, um, who also signed Olivia Newton-John, and, and he told me he, what, he heard Elton John, and he just knew there was just something magical there. And he insisted when the record company decided it's time to put out a single off the Elton John album, the original single has Take Me to the Pilot as the A-side and your song is the B-side. And Russ said, no, your song is a perennial turntable song. The other song is fantastic, Take Me to the Pilot. So they he made the label put a more focus on the B-side, uh, the original pressing of the 45 vinyl, of and your song became, well, we hear it every day of our lives, don't we? So occasionally, the other side of a record that might have been considered a dog or something maybe a little less inferior than what was to put more of the heat and the focus on the A-side, occasionally the B-side gets flipped and all of a sudden you have a, an unexpected hit song. It may not be the dog uh, your caller is talking about, but that has happened on occasion. Russ Regan's uh, family, they're working on a documentary on his life. I, I was filmed for it, and um, a visionary A&R man. Oh, my God, he was great. History. Great guy, too. Just a super guy. I'll tell you a funny Russ Regan story. Several years ago... The Beach Boys were playing in St. Louis, and I went into a restaurant in St. Louis, and a couple of the waiters came up to me and said, Mike Love is here from the Beach Boys. And I went, you're kidding me. And they said, no, he's he's over there. I said, I'm going to go up and say hi to him. They said, no, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. Please don't do that. And I said, tell him a friend of Russ Regan is here. And so they did, and he said, bring him over right now. I mean, they just adored Russ. Well, he changed the name from the Pendleton. Which was a sweater. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, to the Beach Boys. And also he was instrumental in suggesting to the great A&R man producer, Nick Vinay at Capitol, to go hear, you know, surfing and a couple of the the demos. And Brian Wilson has confirmed that story to me many times. There are many overlooked heroes. He also, he discovered Neil Diamond, too. Well, he Neil Diamond was on Bang Records initially and had a couple of hits like Solitary Man. And then once his contract ended, Russ Reagan said, we've got to have him. And Neil insisted he wanted to put out three albums a year to start. And no other record label could guarantee that. And Russ Reagan said, give him whatever he, he wants. And look what happened. David in New Hampshire. David, let's squeeze you in here. Go ahead, sir. Yes, uh, how you doing, George? And um, good. How you doing, Harvey. Thank you. Incredible, incredible show, man. I'm, you guys got me fired up. Now, George, I, I just want to have two questions: uh, one for you and one for Harvey. But George, um, I'm very fascinated. I feel like I have um, graduated to the University of Coast to Coast. Sometimes, <laughs> I, yeah, I talk to people and they're like, "Where do you get your information?" I'm like, "Coast to Coast." 
like, what are you talking about? Yeah, we travel. I'm like, anyways, and I would love, I'd love the show, um, especially when it comes to records and record players. Um, thank God they don't recycle those. But you know, um, seriously, when you, you know, when you you take a bite of something you really like that you know takes you back like twenty five, thirty years. You know, I know it's a, you know, it's a brain thing, but other than that, um, you know, it's like when you set down a needle, that diamond that trans- transforms that vibration. It's like it's magic. You know, it's like you can't. Music is a, definitely a spiritual thing. It's an excess. It's like you know, it's like um, Deja Vu by Bujade. You know, um, but anybody remember Cannibal Lake Park? Because I'm from Selma, Hampshire. I grew up around here. My whole family worked at Rockingham Racetrack, which is now like a, I don't know. It was That's like great. Do you remember that? We're almost out of time here, uh, Harvey, as the clock is going to get us. But, well, that's uh, where they would have uh, doo-wop shows and a lot of the, uh, you know, the Four Seasons, all the package shows, I think, came through there. All right, my friend. Harvey, keep in touch with us, and maybe we'll see you at the Pat Boone Luncheon in Feb, huh? Find me. My birthday's right there. Can't wait. Thank oh. you for everything tonight. It was a blast. You got it, my friend. Harvey Kubernick did a great job. Up next, open lines. Get ready to make that call.